0: Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. Hannah Stainer is a host of a weekly podcast called Psych Mental Well-Being. Hannah is a transformational life coach, qualified SEN teacher, and mental health advocate. She holds a master's degree in psychology and is a graduate member of the British Psychological Society. And today, we'll be talking, among other things, how even superheroes like Iron Man are vulnerable. I hope you enjoy the show. Well, I think it's brave to talk about things that our society doesn't deem acceptable. Hmm. It's the too much information kind of thing, you know. Uh, you shouldn't talk about these things. And, it, and that's actually probably a good place for us to dive in. There's a cultural difference between Britain and America. Mm. And we here in the United States are not overly accepting of depression, anxiety. And then the bigger ones, bipolar, schizophrenia, where you are in need of medication and serious medical uh, intervention. That's, how is it in Britain I mean, I know there's a lot of different cultural taboos in Britain that we don't have here, but how is depression and anxiety dealt with?
1: Yeah, it's. I, from my perception, I feel that we're maybe a bit better with mental health than you are in the States, but that could be completely wrong. Right. <laughs> um,
0: well, good to hear. But,
1: um, and I think with depression and anxiety, I feel that we most people have a reasonable understanding of that. Now it's kind of talked about, it's sort of in popular culture, we're having more uh, kind of famous figures kind of stepping forward and saying, this is my experience being open, male and female. And so I think that we've had, you know, some, um, Freddie Flintoff recently, who's a cricketer did um, kind of, yeah, something. And so I think that's really powerful as well, kind of breaking down that that stigma around uh, men's mental health. So I think, There's a lot still a long way to go for depression and anxiety, but it's kind of more understood. Um, and probably most workplaces there is a responsibility to support people with their mental health. Uh, A lot of organizations doing mental health first aid training. So, I'm a mental health first aider, and that Mm. kind of idea that although it's not on a par with physical first aid at the moment, that idea that we should have both so that if someone's kind of in crisis, there are people within the organization who feel able to kind of support but I think with uh, yeah some of the other conditions and particularly as you said bipolar schizophrenia things with a psychosis um there's still I think a lot of misconceptions and fear um, around those conditions so I think we're better than we've probably ever been before but we've still got a long way to go
0: yeah I think that that's good to hear and I think America is attempting it. In certain areas, Freddie coming out and cricket, obviously, is a much bigger sport uh, globally. We don't play it here, we don't understand it here, but I saw him on an interview and he was impressive. And brave is a word I'd use for him too, because it's difficult as a celebrity to come out and admit you have these weaknesses for a lot of different purposes. Sometimes it's it's sponsorship because people are like, hey, we don't really want to attach ourselves to that, Uh, or just the machismo that runs through athletes in general. Uh, I think that the one thing that I wanted to get your take on, because this happened after we chatted, was, or after we had our discussion, was Harry and Megan. And when mm-hmm. they came out and talked to Oprah, that I thought that was amazing. I thought she was very convincing and she seems very kind and real and genuinely sad. Like it was what she went through. I, and, and this was all part of the discussion afterwards. Here in America, it was very vitriolic, the, the, the reaction. Uh, with the, Even with some of my buddies were online. were like, oh, well, obviously she knew she, what she was getting into. And it's like, well, let's say she did. Let's just say that she did know what she was getting into and she was chasing fame by being a, being a duchess. Does that take anything away from the fact that she actually wanted to end her life? <laughs> right? And that, that's the kind of thing that I see... It's not just in the zeitgeist on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram. It's on my feeds from people that I love and respect, hammering her. And that, that to me was sad because I interviewed another I interviewed therapist on my podcast. His name was Ryan Casey Waller. And we talked about this. And I asked him specifically, what did you think as a therapist? And he just gushed and he was, he just like sat up and he goes, oh, I guarantee you. And he's a Christian. So I think the fact that he threw damn in there, I was like, oh, he's serious. And I guarantee you that people reached out to their therapist today, or they reached out for the first time today, because when someone is suffering from depression that has everything that you think you want in our world, you know, the the big beautiful wedding married to the prince living in an actual castle <laughs> right <laughs> it's that's the dream that's disney that's what you grew up with and and this young lady was not just sad she wanted to end her life and numerous times over a pretty long period and that that's scary how did you personally view that or did you see it and then how did your your friends and even just close culture deal with that
1: yeah it's, it was really interesting in in the uk and and i've not seen i've I've read a lot about it and, and seen a little bit of it i've not seen the the full interview um but there was a lot and i don't know if you know piers morgan
0: oh i who, <laughs> i don't like it <laughs> uh,
1: so he um is known for generally i think just trying to be controversial yes and it was know. very interesting because he was like, I don't believe her. Right. And so many uh, mental health charities actually called him out and said, and complained. And the fact that uh, ITV, the, the um, channel that the show is on, had so many complaints and they're behind this uh, this mental health kind of uh, campaign. And so you had Mind, one of the big mental health charities, saying, you can't question people's experience in that way right. and maybe it's it's not true but you know right. she's saying this is her experience and we need to basically kind of believe or give people the benefit of the doubt or appreciate that that is their experience that they're sharing and it sets a really dangerous precedent if you just go well i don't think that's true i don't believe you yeah and so i think that's the kind of conversation i saw a lot about well did that really happen or is is it attention Um, and, and a lot of the the conversations I saw was about that. This is why sometimes people find it difficult to reach Mm -hmm. out because people go, no, you don't, (laughs) you're just saying that or there's, and, and, and there's a few things I've seen recently where you have, um, where someone dies by suicide and people are like, Oh, I I really wish they would, they'd spoken to someone and and they Mm -hmm. really show that caring. And then when someone says, I've been feeling suicidal, I need support. And people say oh, no, you don't, or, you know, stop asking for attention. And there's this real disconnect um, yeah. of really attempting to understand and support people and and respect that if they say that's their experience, then we have to kind of accept that that's their experience, that's their perspective. Um, because more often than not, it is going to be that that is how they felt. I think it's probably very rare that someone is just saying that that's what they're yeah. going through when when they haven't. Yeah.
0: I think so too. Do, what, part of the discussion I had with uh, this therapist, Ryan, was that it, when someone, as a celebrity, it pierces the wall. And Freddie is an example of that where, oh, how can you possibly have this? And you actually mentioned this uh, in what during one of the podcasts you were being interviewed on, where someone said, when you told them you were feeling depression that day, they said, what do you have to be depressed about? Yeah, right. (laughs) Which is, I there's not a lot of black and whites in our world, but I think that's a black and white. Don't do that,
1: (laughs) right? Because that's
0: it's a very subtle punch in the face. uh,
1: You know, and it stayed with me, and it really changed how I felt about that person, and and it really kind of puts you off sharing. And it's and maybe it was a poor choice of words to say. I feel really depressed today, and because it kind of, you know, I was. Um, I don't know if I was in therapy at that point, but I was on antidepressants. I was, you know, I'd been to the GP. I was yeah. depressed. Um, but maybe it's that, you know, if you throw it in as a throwaway comment, I feel really depressed today. Maybe that's, you know, people kind of think, well, you're not depressed because they look at you and you're at work right. and right. you seem to be functioning. Uh, so they're like, well, you can't be depressed. And the fact that so she was um, quite a bit older than me, I was 21, I was out of university and it was just that, What have you got to be depressed about? And it was just, yeah, it was kind of, it was a bit like a slap in the face, a bit like shocking. Like, and and then I think sometimes it makes you kind of question. There's a big thing I think about self-stigma and about comparison, and we kind of think, well, oh, my life's not that bad. Like, what have I got to be depressed about? Because these people are going so much worse, and then we make ourselves feel worse because then we're sort of not honouring our own experience. And that is something that I still find that I do, you know, that I, um, this week, there's been a group of amazing young people in Europe who are, um, they're doing this panel, all these panels about mental health. And I've been watching those. It's amazing. And some of them are sharing their experience of having been hospitalized and really mm. a lot of stuff. And then you kind of think, oh, well, who am I to share my experience? Cause I've only, you know, have yeah. this, but it's still your experience is still valid like whatever your experience has been yeah
0: yeah I, I think that's a piece for me i never understood that i was depressed because i was never suicidal
1: mm.
0: and because of that i just assumed it was you know there are a lot of descriptors but melancholy in a funk and that's normal you know everyone has days where they're off and i there's a big difference between being off just not feeling good that day or or sad than you have apathy. And for me, that's where it would come when I knew I was in trouble, was when I had no joy. You know, mm-hmm. it was the fact I couldn't find joy in anything, even things I used to enjoy. I, d- I couldn't enjoy watching television, as an example, because there was too much anxiety involved. And so I'd have to go and watch something that I've watched before because my brain was not attaching any. And those types of things didn't really register for me. Even until I started writing, I didn't realize how much historical norms that I followed as it related to depressionary and anxiety types. You're like, oh, okay, that's this, that's this, that's this. And I think it's on a continuum like anything else, right? And then when you look at things like schizophrenia and bipolar, my little brother suffered from bipolar, but he was self-medicating from the age of 10. And because he was an alcoholic and a drug addict, they could not find a baseline. So they couldn't find a cocktail that worked to control him. And that was very difficult for me to watch. And I think that in part was why I didn't think I had any issues because my little brother was way up on the spectrum as it relates to you know, suicidal. He wanted to, he did a lot of bad things. He was in and out of jail. He was in and out of rehab centers. And so I was kind of focused on like, okay, oh, that, that's depressed. That's bipolar. That's a mental malady that I do not have. My older brother, who is heavily medicated on Zoloft and has been for decades, is suicidal as well. And so it's one of those things where I was comparing myself and say, well, I'm fine, you know, because I don't have these issues. And you mentioned, and I can't remember, I did a lot of homework on you, but I don't remember where it all comes from. <laughs> but you did mention that you were young when you realized you were having these issues. At what age did you realize that you were not? Feeling the same things as other folks as it related to your mental health?
1: Yeah. I think it probably was um, early 20s, actually, with depression when I was like, that's what's going on. Um, and that was on mental health awareness training for work. And they were describing all right. the different and I nearly was in tears because, like, oh my God, they're like just describing okay. me completely. Yeah. But I think from, and I probably would always describe myself as melancholy <laughs> when I was younger, okay. actually. Um, but I think in my, and I was very anxious as a teen um, and my parents had um, a difficult divorce and it's only recently I've been like, actually, that was really tra- traumatic, the experience. But, you know, when I went to secondary school, so at 11, I um, I went to a school that was kind of out of my catchment area slightly. So I didn't really know anyone in my class. And for like, I don't know how long, but I say like first six months, it was not that long, <laughs> but I was... I didn't talk to anyone. I was like a selective mute because I was so anxious about it. I wow. could talk to teachers, but other students, you know, I was really anxious and socially anxious, although I didn't really recognize it as a, at the time and felt like an outsider. And then um, the, the kind of the traumatic experience. So I, um, my dad was working away at the time and I had been ice Skating because we did a charity ice skate. When, why not? It's charity week. <laughs> we got sponsored to just like skate around and have fun. Uh, so, me and one of my friends I cycled to school with, we came home to my house and everything was boxed up. And my mom gave some kind of excuse for having a sort out, but it was like, we're moving, <laughs> we're moving out. And so, suddenly, everything kind of changed and we didn't move far, but you know, it's not like my parents were having like arguments and everything, it was just suddenly. We're going. And um, and then my mum was was seeing someone else. So there were some evenings where she would just kind of go out. And so it was just this suddenly like everything sort of fell apart. And honestly, I um I didn't realize at the time, but I was just like in <laughs> survival mode. And yeah. um something that my stepmom said to kind of years later was that we were just kind of like emotional wrecks when she met us, because it was just that trying to you know, I don't know, 13, 14, just, you know, all the social anxiety, the fact that uh-huh. teenage years are kind of hellish anyway, and yeah. relationships and friendships and trying to figure out who you are. And then suddenly that kind of security at home to kind of go. And and I, I think that's really where I was depressed and um, not in a good place, but I didn't really realize it. And
0: that was like 11 to time. 13 then.
1: Yeah. And you didn't very-
0: know until... After university, you're taking a training class and you're like, yeah. whoa, this is this is the, all the shit I felt 10 years ago. And I didn't know it.
1: Yeah. You know, and at my university, I I had a few friends and friends that I worked with, but I wasn't hugely social with people on my course. And again, feeling awkward. And I had times where I'd work, I'd go to university, but sometimes where it'd be difficult to get up, get out of bed. I <laughs> comfort shopped and comfort ate a lot. Um yeah. And, um, but at the time I was just kind of muddling through. I didn't really realize that that was why. Um, I kind of thought I was just lazy or, you know, just, Uh I don't know, I was just enjoying watching that TV show. I don't need to get up and (laughs) study any of that. Um, And, but even then, so then I, yeah, early 20s kind of realized that's what it was. And then I had another sort of breakthrough just before I turned 30 where I kind of, I'd known I'd had periods of depression. And then I looked back and I was like, oh, actually, I was depressed all through, all through my twenties. Yeah, yeah. Where I thought I'd been okay, I wasn't really okay at all. It just sometimes hadn't been quite as bad <laughs> as the rest. So,
0: and did yeah. you then, or have you ever done therapy, psychotherapy, like sit down talk?
1: Yeah. So I had uh, kind of early twenties. I had six sessions of CBT, so cognitive behavioral therapy yep. through work. I, I did that too. Yeah, um, which I think was reasonably okay at the time but then didn't really get to the deeper stuff. And actually for about the last year, I've uh, been in psychotherapy. Oh, good. And that's partly um, started because um, I was doing some counseling training myself and that's kind of the route that I want to go down. So I had to be in therapy. Um, So, but actually I was like, it's probably time. (laughs) Okay. So,
0: <laughs> Th- then the next question begs why did you take so long to go to talk therapy if you started to understand that you were not that you were suffering from depression as early as 21 was there a, a stigma attached to it or did you just not get around to it
1: Do I think um I think it was not feeling able to or wanting to talk about my experience to open up yeah. yeah. Um, and which is funny because now I just talk about it.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Now you have a podcast that talks about it. Now a podcast. Um,
1: yeah, but I think it was that. So, one of my big things is being really, and this I think is the social anxiety, really worrying what people think of me. And so, in social situations, I'm not kind of just doing what I want and enjoying, I'm like, what are they going to think of this thing that I say and like obsessing and really hyper vigilant. And really, that's my entire kind of how I, um, I'm not so bad when with friends and now, but that's right. like my lens. That like, oh, what do people think? And you know, right. so actually, I could you know been at social situations where I'm just like quiet because I'm just like watching and like, oh my god, what do I do? Um, <laughs> so the idea of going into a space and talking about stuff with someone, and that fear that they, although that's their profession, even privately, would, right? even privately right? that they would yeah. judge me yeah. in the, some way, the therapist, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's I mean that's
0: honest. So thank you. I I asked that question because it's that is a stigma here in the United States is that you, if you go to therapy, it's a weakness. There's something wrong with you. It's that whole one flew over the cuckoo's nest kind of thing where that show had such an effect on our culture that oh, if you're going to therapy, that means you're going to the to the nut house, quote unquote, and you are not well and we can't really count on you and maybe we don't want you around our kids <laughs> and you know it's it's a huge stigma that way and and for me i went to therapy i had forced therapy as a kid because i had some fighting problems in high school and i beat up a kid pretty bad one day and and i was either going to go to jail or i was going to go to therapy and so i did that mm-hmm. and i went to therapy in my 20s none of which was great and then as i fell in love uh, with my wife and we had kids well, it was before we had kids. I started going to therapy when I fell in love because I, I have read <laughs> and I do believe that you have to love yourself before you can love someone else. And I had yet to actually love myself. I was wonderfully arrogant <laughs> and I could, I could let's just say put on a, a persona that made everything look good, but I wasn't genuinely in love with myself. And then the self-loathing that I had experienced was drinking and drugs, and lots of women, and everything typical of a guy who supposedly has it all. Good job, good paycheck, nice cars, nice homes, all of that. What what do I need to do? And that's why when we talked, I think the last time was, what do you do to self-medicate? Mine were all the typical dude things. Mm. Where it's, if I was, like, even after my little brother's death, I don't remember much in the next year. Because it was just a blitzkrieg of booze and women and hotels and penthouses and spending as much money as I could to distract from all mm-hmm. of the drama that was going on inside my head. And then when I sat down and talked to a psychotherapist, I interviewed a bunch of them. And I did the cognitive behavior and I looked at Albert Ellis' stuff, and I, mm-hmm. which was more rational behavior and, and all these different methods to help you understand what you're doing. And the the psychologist that I glommed onto was due to her background and deviant behavior. She understood PTSD. She understood uh, sociopaths in the parental realm.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: so when I asked her, you know, I have these issues that I was talking about my little brother and she starts, she was just, you know, and she said, does your father ask you these questions? And th- does your father exhibit this kind of behavior? And did he do this to you and your brothers? And I was like, oh my God, like, <laughs> how did you know this? And she was well, this is this is what I trained. This is good news, bad news, Joey, is that you're not alone. There's a lot of people out there like that. There's a lot of parents out there like that. And once I understood that, then she, she also understood me well enough to say, I need you to bring a check every Wednesday at five o'clock or I will not seat you for the session. And I was like, I, can I just pay in advance? And she's like... That's exactly why you have to bring a check. You are not attentive to yourself. And so every Wednesday at four o'clock, you need to think, oh, I need to get a check. And I need to think about what I want to talk about today. And I was like, oh, I love you. (laughs) Done, you know? And so I spent eight years on a couch with her. Mm. And it was the greatest thing I've ever done because I unwound so much of my trauma growing up. One of the questions I ask young kids is, are your parents in love? And it doesn't mean they have to be married. It doesn't mean anything other than are they in love? Because what you ex- experienced, and what I experienced with my dad and my mom's divorce, and my dad's other divorces and my mom's other divorces, it was just like, oh, okay, it's all different for everyone. But the one commonality is there's no love there. And I think that's a big piece for kids is when they see their parents not love each other, it it affects them in a negative way. And how much it affects you, I mean. Obviously, that's individual, but I think that that's where psychotherapy really helps. And that's one thing. I am such a big advocate for psychotherapy. I tell everyone, I did it and it's fantastic and you should do it too. And then this can go back to our cultures. Is it widely acceptable or available for you guys in Britain? Is it like you can just as anyone can just call up and say, I need help and get help?
1: So. Um, (laughs) it's, there is therapy available on the health service. The waiting lists are long, sometimes up to 18 months. 18 Um, months. mm -hmm.
0: Holy cow. Okay.
1: And, and often it tends to be more the cognitive behavioral that's available, the kind of shorter term interventions than psychotherapy. Um, there are private psychotherapists when it gets into the cost of that, because we don't tend to widely have like health insurance um so no. it's either on the health service or you have to to kind of self fund hey. it yeah um so that has an impact and it's also um i was speaking to someone recently who was trying to find um a th- a private therapist um and couldn't find anyone and they found it really difficult to find someone that had space so wow. um so yeah it's it's interesting but i think we also have i don't know if this is the same there um, and I also think there's something really valuable about that time and building that relationship with the therapist and having yeah. that space and that time to explore yourself because it's, it's like layers kind of coming no, off. And then you kind of go like, yeah, I'm sorted. I figured it out. And then <laughs> something else comes up. You're like, oh, there's more. <laughs> there's more here. right, right, um, And there <clears throat> seems to be, and I'm not saying that that these modalities don't work and aren't effective but there seems to be a lot more of things like the like clinical hypnotherapy and kind of energy mm-hmm. work and those kind of things of people saying you know you don't want to have years in therapy so just do this thing and then you'll feel some mm. stuff shift and yeah I'm I'm skeptical about it I'm not saying that you can't have shifts but I think there is something about the t- I think it takes time to yeah to unpack wounds sometimes yeah. and that trauma. And and to then, it's like you kind of stir it all up and then you need to let it settle a little bit yep. to then stir up more stuff. Yeah,
0: yeah. And I think that's what's important to know. And that's why therapists are so well-trained. And so that's a big piece of it is they can't unwind too much. And that I learned from her because she would say, okay, that's enough for today. Mm-hmm. And I'd be like, okay, why? And she's like, well, we did a lot. And so you're going to feel a lot. And be conscious of that. And if you feel really dark, if you feel really off, you can call me. And I was like, okay. And that happens sometimes, where I was just like, holy cow, it's plumbing this, you know, network that you just haven't paid attention to. And 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 then those feelings, the specific anxiety. It's it's like, you know, people always ask me, what does anxiety look like for you?
1: Yeah.
0: And I say, well, it's it's kind of the amygdala's over response to something in your brain, where you think you see a snake in front of you and your brain's like snake you know and you're like no it's a stick it's a stick yeah. you know and then you know it's a stick intellectually you're like that's a stick and then your brain's like no it's not you know and it's it's that whole and so people are like that's what anxiety is it's like yeah it's you're in flight mode you're already like you're panicked and you're like i can't and if you've ever been panicked and they're like i've been panicked i'm like if someone scares you that Im- immediacy where you can't move that's fight flight or front or, or freeze. And sometimes people freeze. I freeze sometimes. And explaining that to people helps because they're like, oh. And or if it's less, you're just kind of leaning forward all the time. There's no relaxation in your body. There's no contentment. There's no calm. And that mm-hmm. that's a big thing where therapy helps you understand the pause button. So that's what she, if I can just say, if I can encapsulate eight years of therapy, it's the pause button. Is it a snake? Uh, no, it's a stick. <laughs> okay. So now that we know it's a stick, can you breathe? <sighs> she do that to me sometimes because I was talking and I wasn't breathing. Can you breathe? I'm like, well, I'm breathing. <laughs> She's like, <laughs> breathe, breathe deeper. But it was those types of pieces. And then, you know, to your point around like holistic medicines, I've been reading a lot lately about ayahuasca. And a a lot of the different treatments that you're seeing, uh, there was a great book called The Immortality Key. And it's, I don't want to get too much into it. It's a a very deep book about uh, the road to Eleusis, which is the the religion before Catholicism and ancient Greece. And it's just, it's a 12-year dive. This author, Brian Maracusco, I think, Mara Rescue, Rescue, uh, just became obsessed with this. And he's never done it himself, but he's watched. He's witnessed all of this, and and so there's a lot of different. I don't know if you've seen this, but there's a lot of trips to Peru, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of trips to the Dominican, and there's a lot of trips to um, different parts of the world who are, have these these shamans and these gurus walking people through these ayahuasca sessions where you mm-hmm. actually open up your brain. Kind of it's the Timothy Leary, Ram Dass thing where you know they were tripping balls on. LSD back in the day, and it—I've done—I've done peyote, which is a very similar. It's a DMT piece, and um, it, it does open up doors in your yeah. brain, and you do see things, and you do hallucinate, and you do. With Timothy Leary, I remember actually, it was Ram das who said that while he was on LSD, he watched his legs disappear. So he was on a couch with a bunch of other guys tripping, and then he looked down, and his legs were starting to disappear, like. And what he realizes is that his body wasn't him. And so that was like, boom, open door. And as a professor of psychology at Harvard, he then felt like a poser because he's like, I don't know anything. And I'm just regurgitating all this text that I learned over the last 12 years of my education. And so when young kids come and ask me, what do I do? How does this work? Or how does he, I have all these answers, but he realized he didn't have the answers and that was his shift. So mm-hmm. it does, there are, I think psychedelics can have a play, but I'm, I'm with you a hundred percent. And if you're going to do them, I think it's a, um, in addition to not in lieu of, I don't think you can just poo poo therapy because mm-hmm. you don't think it works. <clears throat> and again, I'm uneducated. So I, I don't mm-hmm. have any specific education in this field. You specifically do. And so one thing I also looked at, you work with children, you work with youth mm-hmm. at what age do you start talking with these kids about mental health about their feelings about what's going on in their little brains how how young are these kids
1: Uh, well i mean for me i tend to work more adolescence and that end but i think it's teenagers um but i think it's a conversation you can have at any age but it's obviously making it age appropriate Um, correct and um and it's interesting because I mentioned about this this youth mental health panel that I was listening to, and actually a lot of young people, kind of eight, nine, ten, eleven. You know, that's when they were starting to really start feeling a lot of stuff and depression and hate. You know, yeah. <laughs> so wow. Yeah, and and I guess you know I said like eleven for me. Yeah. Um, and so I think it's something that you you can't really start too young. It's just thinking about, you know, how you make it accessible. Like, yeah. um, you know, a lot of conversations and I guess with emotions, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Cause we just think, Oh, we're human. We have emotions. We'll figure it out. We don't need to be taught <laughs> how to <laughs> right. feel. Right. Um, but you know, I, I mean, I still, <laughs> this is one of my things in therapy. I'm an intellectualizer. So I like talk about stuff, make sense. And tapping into my feelings and actually acknowledging them and feeling them is still something at 33 that I struggle with. Um, and we're not really taught to kind of go, okay, I'm feeling, I'm feeling angry. Like, yeah. where is that coming from? What can I do? Not kind of going, Oh no, go away, go away. Anger. We don't right. want to feel you. Like, shove it down. <laughs> shove it down. Cause that's not good. No. And I think sometimes parents, you know, with even with, like the best of intentions, if their child is sad or angry, they're like, Oh no, 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 you're fine. Like you're not sad. Right. It's, you're not angry. Because they don't want to their child to be upset or whatever, right. or they find it difficult to deal with, and they think that it's helpful. But actually, the lesson you're kind of inadvertently giving them is, it's, it's not okay to feel those emotions. Right, but we hide them,
0: <laughs> and That's a good point.
1: And then they build up. And actually, if you can kind of you know support them to sit with it and go, oh, okay, what what are we feeling? Oh, uh, and it could be to start with going, oh, it looks like maybe you're feeling angry or you're upset you know, what happened, kind of understanding kind of where it came from, and then thinking about what they can do that is going to help them kind of honour that feeling and then mm-hmm. kind of let it go. Um, and that could be for younger children, like to draw something. That's quite therapeutic yeah. to kind of draw it out. Um, and I think something I, I think is really important with um, for young people is parents kind of modelling things. So if you, as a parent, are upset about something, angry about something, and not at your children, that's... A different thing but you're yeah. angry at something else kind of saying about it and kind of showing that process of oh I'm upset about this this is what I'm going to do like I need a bit of time because I'm upset about this and then kind of coming back and going oh look I'm okay, I'm okay again now because I've kind of processed it and what you're demonstrating yeah, yeah emotions they're kind of natural you are allowed to feel them and we can do something about it and then we're okay again and it's nothing to be ashamed of. And I think that's such a valuable thing. And that's a good way of starting. Because I feel like a lot of issues possibly come from that burying stuff down, not being able to express it, not being able to communicate it. So I think that's the starting point, just thinking, what are emotions, what are feelings and talking about that.
0: So when you're working with these kids, are you doing this individually or in groups?
1: Uh, so I've done a mix Um with young people, um, and it's something I, um, I'm going to be building up a lot more of. I've got an exciting project going on working with young people, although actually, probably okay. older young people, like teens. So maybe I need to get more. Yeah, I say kids
0: too loosely because kids yeah. to me are teenagers. So
1: yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: it's they're just kids to me. I don't mean it in a pejorative, yeah. but they're just young.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, what does that look like then? That sounds interesting.
1: Yeah. So. Um, so that yeah, so a, a mix, and the yeah, the, the new project is uh, like a social enterprise to okay. basically do a mix of kind of some workshop type things, um, and a lot of kind of more coaching approach rather than therapeutic, um, because there's a kind of yeah, a different focus and a lot more mm-hmm. kind of early intervention. Um, and I think they're saying really valuable with mental health, and I guess it's the thing that we talked about when people are seeing celebrities share. It's kind of going. Oh, it's not just me. Right. And there's a lot of comfort in knowing you're not alone in this. And so having that group environment where people can share and you can kind of go, oh, someone else gets it. Yep. I'm not alone. That's so powerful. But I think also there is that real value in that individual as well of being able to have a space where you can talk about what's going on for yourself and really explore. things for yourself so yeah that's our kind of plan to offer a mix of um more coaching than than, um, yeah and i think that's
0: the same thing it's in addition to not in lieu of so if the kids are suffering from anxiety or depression and or this is also a debate in our culture is is it hereditary
1: Mm.
0: can you and there's most of the research i've i've pulled up is that yes there's hereditary corollary causation discussions, but it's yes. And then... Yeah. Because my brothers and I all suffer. My dad was mentally ill. So there's, to me, that's like, okay, my mom is chronically anxious. She's never been depressed. I mean, she's... I shouldn't say that. She was depressed when her son died when my little Mm -hmm. brother passed because that's normal, right? That's a... You should be depressed when you lose a child. But historically, she's never suffered like my brothers. And my father was more of a sociopath than anything else. But there was... I've always been biased to that because oh yeah you inherit that. So when when you're working with these children as a coach, are you looking at you talk about modeling, right? Mm. It's are you talking with the parents as well at any point and using that exact advice? Say hey, you know your son, your daughter doesn't understand where their anger comes from. Are they repressing their anger and then if they're doing that because kids watch everything, they don't necessarily mm. listen to what you say they just watch cuz i've watched my children get frustrated with their computers cuz i am a little i can't figure out my computer half the time and i'm like ah you know and so i've watched my 7 year old do that exact thing and i'll i'll say dude i'm sorry that's daddy's fault like you can't act like that yeah <laughs> cuz it's a it's a computer and you yes you got frustrated but that's that's daddy's problem and i'm working on that so mm-hmm. let's not go there <laughs> you know yeah. and when i see my little one my oldest one is clueless and happy, he's nine. And the seven year old will ask me questions like, Daddy, I don't like I don't like being the youngest. And I'll say, Why is that? And I'll say, Well, because that means I'm not gonna be here or I'm gonna be here after everyone's gone. And I was like, Oh my God, seven. And and I, you know, I do my homework on that too. The existential things start to pop up as early as seven. And so we try to explain that to him too. These are normal, that's a normal feeling, buddy. It's but just understand that. This, you're probably going to have a spouse, your wife, husband, whatever. You're going to have children. You're going to have a family. You're not going to be alone. But you're not going to be here anymore. I'm like, yeah, no, I can't be here forever. That's just part of life. And neither is mommy. And But I can already see the little one kind of inheriting some of those anxiety pieces. And my wife is cautious on how we bring it up and when we bring it up. And that's why I asked you, because I think that even in schools here in America, they have these mindfulness moments where they meditate in the morning. And when children start to act up, they do this chicken thing where they they trace their fingers and say, mm-hmm. okay, just breathe, breathe, breathe. And so then the children breathe and they're like, okay. And then "What? where is this coming from? Why are you upset? Well, Billy stole my ball. <laughs> You're like, okay, that's understandable. <laughs> it's your ball and we'll get back from Billy and we'll talk with Billy. But, Do you have serious conversations with these young people at 12, 13, where they're like, I, I can't get out of bed. I can't, I don't want to talk with people. I don't want to be in, in in large environments. I'm terrified of social engagement. You know, is it, is it that level of coaching that you're working with or what does that look like?
1: So I think it, um, it depends on, on the young person. I think it's, um, there's a there's a line between coaching and therapy and that's something yes. you have to be mindful of yeah um and and i uh, my kind of view is that it's in the coaching space they can kind of bring in whatever they want to bring in and to talk about and sometimes it's just having that space to explore but we don't tend to go too deep in the way like a therapist might into what what's kind of going on for them um but sometimes you know i think with therapy and, and young people there can be a bit of a well, <laughs> you want to go to therapy yeah but there's also you know as we were saying therapy can take a, a long time to unpack stuff and explore stuff but you're also living your life and coaching is a lot more about that and a lot more i think about that kind of managing and the future and so mm-hmm. um so it's that it's that kind of thing but to me you know um the way I work is is that kind of open safe space to explore and if it's something that's like that's maybe too much sort of saying that they know this isn't really unfortunately the right space and then you know kind of saying it's maybe a therapy conversation um and it's trust is a big thing as I'm sure yeah you know maybe you have with with your therapist of building that relationship first yeah because to start with you'll have a lot of I'm fine. <laughs> I just yep. don't want to get up. Right. just there's nothing wrong um, or not wanting to talk about it and um, and so that takes time to to build that. Um, and probably more of my experience, those conversations um, are my time teaching rather than as a coach, having a lot of conversations, which is weird because again that's not really the space for those conversations, but a lot of that pastoral support when you've got a relationship with a young person in that way. And, and in that role, I was maybe a bit. About my mental health.
0: Hmm. Hey, I'm losing you, Hannah. I don't know what happened there.
1: Let me tell you about all my problems. Sorry, my back.
0: Yeah. You just started talking Uh, about your own mental health, and then it broke up. Yeah.
1: yeah. And so, yeah. And, and it's not about kind of going, let me tell you about all my, all my problems <laughs> kind of offload, but there can be something really where you can kind of share a little bit of this is my experience. This is what I did. And it helps to build that sense of you're not alone, that empathy, and also that they know that that's a safe space and that yeah. they can trust you. And that actually if they come to you, you're not going to be like, Oh, that's nonsense. Like, (laughs) you know, you're maybe, yeah, you're going to be more open to it. And it's, and I think it's the same in lots of conversations that being willing to show a little bit of yourself and your own vulnerability, then people open to it. And I think it's something that in, well in therapy that the smaller bit of training I've done, it's very much not sharing yourself. Um, coaching is quite not sharing yourself. Uh, education there's a lot about what's appropriate and I think it's obviously there have to be those professional boundaries um, yeah but sometimes sharing something and and it's about the intention I think of why you're sharing it if it's this is something that I'm just gonna kind of share and it might be helpful to you it's and you're keeping the child the young person at the center and it's not about me and I just want to share about my life
0: right. and that's
1: to me that feels something kind of easy and whether that's just practice, whether it's more of a skill of kind of being able to, to choose what you share. But I think it's, it is really valuable of, um, I guess similar to kind of on our podcast, what we're doing, we're having that conversation. Correct. And, um, you know, and I, I think it's, well, I don't know, imagine what it'd be like if people were just more open and it became just kind of easy to have that conversation.
0: Yeah. I don't know. Enough, but for me, I share with my kids because I was one of my like one of my favorite people in the world passed away when we were on vacation. And he was, I wrote about him in my memoir when my dad's abuse got too heavy. I, I moved in with this family called the Haggertys, and Ron and Debbie were like my parents, and Ricky and Keith and Brent were their children. Ricky and Keith were my best friends in high school, and so I would go in and stay with them, and I loved them to death and ron uh the the husband and father passed away this five days ago i think it was and so i was on the phone with my brother like adopted brother and we we were crying and when i got off the phone my son my eldest son came up and said daddy do you have a headache and i said no sweetie i'm just sad i lost someone that i love and he said okay and that was so telling to me because when I have when I do fall into the hole of depression, my wife sees it instantly. She comes up and gives me a hug and she says, oh, the hamsters are running. And I'm like, yeah. And so it's just visual of the hamsters in the wheel. And, and I'm like, yeah. She's like, how is it? I'm like, it's bad or it's okay. It's, I mean, it's not good, but I'll be okay. And my kids see it. And so I think I share that with you because kids see everything. They don't, you think they don't, but mm-hmm. if you're in a funk, they can feel it and they can see it. And that was very, that, that, that really kind of punched me. I was like, wow, they get it. And I wrote about this too in my epilogue because their hero on television in their Marvel comics is Iron Man. Mm-hmm. And we've watched all of them many times. My brother even used to read their comic books. And so he has vintage Iron Man comic books when we were kids. And so they love Iron Man. And my brother uh, is a great uncle and he just brought over uh, Iron Man's (laughs) actual arc reactor (laughs) from scratch. And my kids built it last night. And it works and they plug it in and they're all excited about it. And I share that with you because in America, at least, we're starting to attempt this in movies. And so Iron Man 3 is there's a big uh, underlying narrative of anxiety attacks. And Tony Stark, the billionaire, (sighs) badass Iron Man, you know, he's just like this perfect dude is suffering from panic attacks. And he has two or three of them during the episodes. And when my children are watching that, they asked me like, daddy, is Tony okay? Or what's wrong with Tony? And I said, well, he's suffering, he's suffering from panic attacks. And, Oh, is that what you have, Daddy? So they correlated mm. that. Like, oh, yeah. so you're you're just like Tony Stark. And I was like, well, except <laughs> for the billionaire cool part. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, we 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 suffer from the same thing. And yeah. it, that to me is why I asked about kids, because it's for me, and this is a very selfish conversation, but like, what do we do with children? Sure. How best do we talk about it? with kids do we say do you admit it you know because i i wrote the book for my kids
1: Mm.
0: and even in the in the foreword i said i i wrote this for you guys so that you know your heroes even your heroes will be vulnerable Mm. and you need to understand that because we're humans and we're all well not all the same but we have a lot of the same makeup and we have the same issues Uh, we all suffer from sadness and and we're all happy at points, and we all have these, you know, this
1: hmm.
0: this maelstrom of of emotion. And what does that look like, and how does it make you feel? Yeah. And as a parent, you want to kind of project strength all the time, so mm-hmm. that your kids feel safe. And for me, that was just not possible because I'm too much of an open book now. Where it's mm-hmm. like, yeah, I'm in a mess. Or I feel this. Or I telling them I have a headache is really all I can do because they're too young to understand it. But someday you'll understand. Oh, so daddy, when you said you had headache, you were mm. in the hole. And it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I couldn't even hear your little voices really. I could, couldn't really feel your hugs the same way. It was just, I was off. It's Anadonia, I think is what it's called. But yeah, I, and that's, that's why I was really happy to see that you're working with kids because I think that, yeah. I don't think we do it enough here where we, and, and, and after the book came out, I had a buddy call me and talk to me about his kids. He has yeah. two of them that are suffering. Because he's gone through a, a cantankerous divorce and so the kids are feeling that and mm-hmm. they're teenagers and so they're lashing out and they're doing things that I did in my book, uh, which was typical of childhood angst or teenage angst where you yeah, you just go at it. And I I don't think it can be too soon. You mentioned as early as eight, but most of the people you work with are in their teenage years and Yeah. Do you see so, a lot of similarities? as far as the like divorce is a trigger and and an abusive parent or
1: yeah i think um there's i think it's a lot about transitional points and really a transition is anything that kind of unsettles your kind of internal equilibrium mm-hmm. you know so yeah. something like a divorce if you think about you know we're trying to make sense of our own self and our experience and we understand ourselves in relation to kind of what's around us so I'm me I've lived with my parents my siblings whatever if something changes that and suddenly I need to kind of reassess and refigure out who I am Mm -hmm. and so there's that kind of managing that external environment but there's that kind of internal stuff that triggers as well so any big life events um are probably going to prompt that and I think um you know, the film example is amazing. I love Marvel. I'm actually on a Marvel marathon at the moment and it's Iron Man 3 today, coincidentally. Wow.
0: <laughs> so you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. I've
1: seen them all multiple times. I'm a yeah, I Marvel fan. Um, so, but there's, so one film, I don't know if you've seen, but I would recommend it to kind of any parent of any age, okay. which is amazing, is the film, the Pixar film Inside Out.
0: I oh yes, we watched it. that.
1: So good. Very uh, good. So, and- so many reasons um, for
0: the, inside the brain. Yeah. Yeah. And, it was really cool.
1: Yeah. And so you can really use this to kind of spark a conversation with, yeah. with children and cause even young children can kind of get it. You can kind of recognize the emotions. And if you notice at the, at the end, the mum and dad have got different emotions driving. Yes. So Riley has got joy driving, but Mum has got sadness and dad has got anger. And so you can kind of talk about that and you can kind of talk about in, you know, in a moment when you're feeling, you can kind of go, well, who's driving at the moment? Like what emotion is driving? Wow.
0: That's cool. It's a good analogy too.
1: Yeah. And, and so then you can, so say if you look at a situation and you're stuck on something, you can think, oh, what would happen? Just be curious. Like, hey, what would happen if disgust was driving at the moment? How would they (laughs) react to this situation? Like how would fear react? Cause then you're really teaching like this all the different emotions um there's so many things i love about the film i love the personality islands as well yes and those kind of things essential memories
0: but the memory memories islands. yeah, yeah
1: core cool yeah. memories <clears throat> but um but also that idea of basically riley is depressed when that control console stops working yeah and um i've watched recently there's this um I can't remember who uh, they are, <laughs> what they're called, uh, cinema cinema therapy or something. And it's a guy who really loves cinema and film and a therapist. And they're just watching films and kind of talking about them. And they talk about Inside Out, which is amazing. They're saying about how it's such a good representation of depression. And that actually, then you can have memories that have that tinge that is a yeah. positive memory. But then when you look at it through that lens, it's got a sad tinge. But also like that sadness can be positive because it, it leads to that connection that we kind of reach right. out for that support. So Inside Out, amazing film. Um, but yeah, it was. play with it a little bit and talk No, it's
0: about a good. It. I'll, I'll watch that again with them because it, it can yeah. help them. And yes, no, that's great advice. I I'll I will yeah. have to check that out because those yeah. things to me are very important. I think that parental vulnerability is important. Mm-hmm. I think they need to know that I'm not right all the time. I'm not strong all the time. And I do that when I make mistakes. I, daddy, daddy, daddy screwed that up, right? Sorry, my bad. Even if I'm yelling at Kingston, my oldest, because he punched his little brother. I'm like, hey, what are you doing? And he said, well, can't punch me first? I'm like, all right, sorry. Why did you punch (laughs) So it's, (laughs) I want them to know that I make mistakes. And to the point now they laugh. Like, obviously daddy makes mistakes all the time. You know, it's like, yes.
1: That's so (laughs) valuable. Because there's something about adults i feel like we've got a little bit of like teenage amnesia or child amnesia of what it's like and like there's that sense when you're younger that suddenly you're gonna have it all figured out when you're an adult and like we try and maintain that illusion that we're in control and we know what's happening and we never make mistakes and i remember a couple of years ago i had an interview for a teaching role with with teenagers kind of like the top end and they asked me a question of like what i would do if i didn't know the answer to something (laughs) it's like I would just say, that I don't know the answer. Right. I don't know. <laughs> and then we'd like find it out. Like, cause that just feels like normal, but there's this thing like, I must know everything. I can't make mistakes. I can't own right. up to them. And it's a really valuable lesson to go. Actually, do you know what? We do make mistakes. We say the mm-hmm. wrong thing and actually we can apologize, like genuinely apologize for it. We yeah. can try and make amends. We can change, we can acknowledge it. And that, doesn't make us less of a person it doesn't make us less strong or capable it's just that's how life is because that is how life is yes um it is
0: (laughs) what it takes pressure off i think if you're always trying to be on and i even said this to some of the younger teammates in my career where i said you know you're you graduated from a top university you didn't ask any questions in that meeting i bring in i was working in the advertising business and so i would bring in a technical vendor that had this really cool application to help our clients sell more stuff, right? Mm -hmm. That's what advertising really is. And the younger team would be in the conference room and when we get done, I'd say, you didn't ask any questions. Do you understand that at that level? Well, no. And I wouldn't do this in front of people, but I would take them into my office and say, because the whole reason I bring them in is so you can ask questions. If I thought you were stupid, I wouldn't have hired you. Right, You went to a better university than I did. You graduated top of your class. You're here for a reason. You don't have to impress me specifically, and then even more so the person that is here to teach you. Ask what that stuff does. Ask specifically how it applies to your client. How, if you're selling motorcycles, how does that technology help you sell more bikes? Oh, okay. And I, I, that's the thing that... This is you know, 23, 24-year-old people are still afraid to ask yeah. questions in an environment. And to me, you have to have enough knowledge even to ask questions. Mm. That's what people don't really understand. If you're asking questions about something, it means you get it, at least at the cursory level. Say, okay, I understand this technology and this is what happens, but what happens if this happens? And that's a great question because then everyone in the room benefits and even those that don't want to (laughs) raise their hand. But I think with kids, it's even more important because if they understand that it's okay not to know everything and it reminds them, you're nine. (laughs) <laughs> you should have a lot of questions. Right? the world's complex. don't worry about being, you know, inquisitive. don't worry about being curious. i think that's the neat thing about being kids. Yeah. is that yeah. they just don't well, i this was wonderful and thank you so much for everything you're doing. i i want i will follow you. i want to see what you're doing with this youth program specifically. Yeah. because i think i think that's where we need to do that. i think america is starting on this path, as I mentioned with the kids, doing some mindfulness training early on. But I think that our youth, even today with COVID, with social media, all these different screens, it's causing anxiety, it's causing depression, it's causing fear of missing out. It's imposter syndrome, all these things that mm. <clears throat> you know we could talk about <laughs> for hours. But I think what you're doing is wonderful. And that's why I wanted to bring you on the show and talk and thanks again for being brave and thanks again for doing what you're doing.
1: <laughs> oh yeah. Thanks so much. I mean, I honestly, uh, don't feel brave really. And I could talk <laughs> about it all day actually. And I think that's a nice way of kind of knowing that you're kind of where you're supposed to be in life yeah. when you're like this, just, yeah, I could talk about it all day.
0: Thanks for tuning in everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts until next time.
1: Big hugs.